was much better. Okay. Uh, I want to say thank you uh, to the guys in the back who were uh, helping us. They had some new tasks this morning. So Nathan is the guy going like this. And uh, Nathan and Caleb, I just want to thank you for the work that you did, uh, and particularly you, Nathan, uh, helping us get this set up this week for YouTube. And I want to welcome all of our friends who are watching, watching and listening at home. And I, I hope that this transition uh, uh, makes it a little bit more effective in your ability to corporately worship while at home, okay? So corporate worship, that's what we're doing here, but some people have to be at home because of just the reality of what's happening, and I hope that this is able to make it more effective. And also, I'll just say, uh, when you guys are sick, when you guys are at home for whatever reason, I want you guys to know that you can join us on YouTube as well. Uh, there's a couple ways. I sent out a link. If you did not get that last night, I sent out a link with a, or an email with a link on it. Uh, I can send that to you if you did not receive that. Also, if you do a simple search for Montana Avenue Baptist Church on YouTube, it should bring it up. And Lord willing, it'll be something that helps us as we worship together. Well, we are going through Christ in the Psalms, Christ in the Psalms, and we have been looking the last, well, few weeks, minus the last two weeks, uh, we have been looking at a psalm, and really as we've been looking at the psalm, we're looking at it as a whole, and then we come to one particular place in that passage, and there's a verse that deals with Christ, and really the New Testament writers deal with Christ in one way or another through these verses. And so if you've noticed that as we've been walking through, that's because that's the way it is that we've been going through it, okay? That's the way that the writers wrote these things. They wrote them. They were expressing something. They were crying out to the Lord. They were calling out to Him because they needed something, because they were in danger, because they wanted something, because they were hurting, because they were suffering. Whatever the case is, they were writing things to the Lord. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, there was a part of the psalm that had to do something with Jesus Christ. And maybe they understood it. Maybe they didn't. I'm not always sure. I think that in Psalm 16, which is what we're going to be looking at today, I think David fully understood the phrase that he used. There's only one way to see that. And Peter grabs a hold of that. And we will see that as we move forward. But as we look at Psalm 16, I want you to understand that Psalm 16 deals with fear. Fear. A, a, a trembling fear that something is wrong, that something is going to happen. He knows the inevitable is just around the corner. He deals with this in a very real way. And it's a cry to God for help. When the pre present problems of life overwhelm you, my desire is that you will respond in the same way that David responded in this psalm. That you will cry out to God for help. Sometimes it's a situation that might be avoidable. Sometimes it's a situation that is inevitable. But in those moments, I want you to know that God is listening. That God is caring for you. And He may not take the suffering away from you. But He will be your stronghold in the midst of that suffering. 
my hope is that you will turn to Psalm 16 and cry out to the Lord in a similar way as David did when you find yourself in a similar place as David. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verses 1 and 2 are David's cry, David's plea for preservation. And in it, David makes several statements about who God is, not about his situation necessarily. In fact, David makes the plea, and he doesn't even bother to tell us what the situation is until much later in the psalm. But David needs preservation. Guys, can I have you help me get to the next slide here? And so David declares this first statement about God, that God is his good Refuge. He takes good refuge in God. Really, the plea is quite simple. I could sum it up in one word. Help! Have you ever been in a situation like David's where all you can do is cry out, Help! I need you! Cries out, Preserve me. Oh God! For it is in you! I take refuge. It's interesting when you consider the writer, David, and the situations that he encountered where he had to offer up a plea for help. Uh, When David was a shepherd, remember? Before he was the king, before he worked for Saul, he was a shepherd. And I can imagine the first time a shepherd boy sees a wolf or a bear or some other beast coming upon him And the fear taking hold of him. What am I going to do? Am I going to run? Or am I going to stand and do what I've been practicing? He picks up that sling and rock and he throws it at the bear or the wolf or whoever, whatever it is. And in one twice he actually says he took a knife and he stabbed a bear. Quite a brave little boy, don't you think? 
Of course, that wasn't the only time that David would have made a plea. Remember, while he was still that shepherd boy going to visit his brothers? And there's no battle taking place? He wants to see the battle. He wants to somehow be involved in the battle. I, I think those were some of his thoughts, at least. And, and his brothers start to get annoyed with him. And he sees Goliath coming. And he says, I'll stand up to that Philistine. He's angry that nobody in Israel will stand up to the Philistine because he knows he's got a God that is greater than their gods. And yet, I wonder what his first thought was when he steps onto the battlefield and he looks up at the giant. Now we know he stood firm, but I can only imagine there was fear as well in the midst of that little boy similar fear that he felt when he saw the beasts attack the sheep. What about Saul? Remember David spent so much of his time running from the man he was sworn to protect. He goes and he hides in these caves and Saul finds himself in the cave with David unknowingly. And Saul leaves, he escapes, and David comes out and says, Saul, what are you doing chasing me? See, I had your life in my hands. And he shows him a little piece of the robe that he cut off. And yet David would not lift up his hand against God's anointed. So what's he to do? He just kept running. And I imagine he continued to plead, Lord, help. I'm going to take my refuge in you. Please help. Please preserve me. You see, David declares right there in verse 1, O God, for in you I take refuge. My question for you is, where do you go for refuge? Where is it that you turn when something is in front of you and you don't know how to deal with it I'll admit, there's a lot of places that I turn for refuge. Uh, can I just be honest and fair with you? Sometimes my first response is not to turn to the Lord. Actually, many times my first response is not to turn to the Lord. I, I, I'll admit, the first place that I turn is to a sporting event. When I want to get away from something, I, I turn to a sporting event whether it's baseball or football or basketball or, well, it's probably not soccer, but maybe it'll be soccer after the next couple of weeks, you know. And, uh, hey, I got, actually, I got pretty excited about it when we went to Columbia and saw some, uh, some, some world-class soccer. That was pretty cool, and I did enjoy that. But I turned to the wrong place many times. Maybe it's a movie, a good book, music. Let's be fair, we turn to music a lot. Music meets every emotion of ours, right? We're excited, we have a lot of energy, if we're working out, if we're, if we're sad, if we're angry, if we're depressed. There's a song for every single emotion that we have, and it's easy to turn to music as a release, as, as this refuge. We may not even think of it that way, and yet that's ultimately what we do when, when we're tired when, when we don't know what to do, when we just want to escape the world for 10 minutes, we get in the car and we drive around. 
Hope that the kid falls asleep in the back seat, right? I think that each one of us can agree, while some of those are good and helpful things, ultimately those things do not satisfy. David wants satisfaction in his refuge, and he knows that God, the Lord, is the only one who can satisfy him, and so he seeks refuge in the Lord. And in fact, he declares it three times. Did you catch it? I tried to point it out in Psalm 8 the last time we looked uh, together at this, or at one of the Psalms, I should say. But he says right here in verse 1, Preserve me, O God. El, as in Elohim, or El Shaddai, right? God is the one that, it is the, the one whom he ascribes deity, power, and strength. That is what that term means, El. And then in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, that is Yahweh. You can see that, all caps right there, capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh, O God, I say to the Lord, you are my Adonai. That is his master. He uses the name for deity. He uses the name of God, who is everlasting. He uses this name, Yahweh, in association with his covenants including the Davidic covenant. And David the king declares the Lord is his Adonai, his master, the one whom he will serve. Is the Lord your God? Or are there times when you serve a God of music, a God of sports and entertainment, a God of good books, God of fast cars, God of guns and weapons, or whatever it might be. Who is your God? Who is the one you turn to when you need to be preserved? Who is the one who is your refuge? Well, David declares this in the midst of it. He says there, I have no good apart from you. You have no good apart from you. William Varner said this, you have taken a giant step toward Christian maturity when you say to the Lord, I have no good apart from you. Can you say that truly in your own heart? I have no good apart from you, God. That's not to say that some of the things around us are not good, but in fact, those are from the Lord. And apart from the Lord, those things, things like family, things like a church, things like what we can turn to in our moments of need, the sunrise, the sunset, the stars, all the things around us, we have no good apart from God. And we recognize those things are only good so much as we see God through them. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And we see God through creation. It is good only at that moment. So David will declare a number of good things that God has provided for him. His first statement is this, that he takes good refuge in God. His second statement is this, he has excellent fellowship. Let me read verses 3 and 4. Excellent fellowship. As for the saints in the land, 
They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply, and their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Really, David makes a comparison and a contrast, but first he focuses in on the saints. I'm going to call this Christian fellowship. This is the excellent fellowship that he has, that he desires, that he sees, and that he loves, and he recognizes this is the good thing that comes from God. Excellent fellowship. The word saints, those holy ones is one way to put it, and in fact that's what he does a little bit later on, but it means those who trust in the Lord. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, If you trust in the Lord, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of your sins, if you follow him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you are one of the saints. It's not this special group of exalted people that the church has somehow delegated or something like that to, oh, these are saints. No, if you trust in the Lord, you are a saint. And it is good to have fellowship with the saints. Part of God's refuge is found in Christian friends whom God sends in our desperate times of need. Let me ask, are you a good friend to those in need? Do you work hard to make sure that you're a blessing to those when they're in times of need, when they're hurting, when they need help, when they need to be loved. Are you the good friend of excellent fellowship that God sends? Work hard to be that good friend. The second half of it's really a comparison, is a contrast with those who seek other gods. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Those who seek after other things, those who seek after anything other than Yahweh, their sorrows are multiplied. Now, very specifically, the context that David was speaking in, it was well, the gods of Baal or Isis or whatever other gods there were at that time. And David's mocking them. He has excellent fellowship. And in a contrast, they all have sorrows multiplied. And yet, The God of this world, money, my case, sports, many other cases, all these other things that we seek after, when we seek after those things, when we seek our refuge in those things, David warns us, your sorrow will be multiplied when you seek after those things. Be aware. Seek God first as your refuge. Let me move forward. The third statement. He has a beautiful inheritance. A beautiful inheritance. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Again, William Barner draws out 
uh, the importance of this statement, saying not just God's gifts, but God himself. Not just his gifts, but God. God is our portion, our inheritance. This is a common theme throughout the Psalms. Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and my heart shall fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 142.5 says, I cry out to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Do you remember when Israel, they came out of Egypt and they're getting ready to go into the promised land? God started to give out the allotments. Gave this land to Judah, this land to Benjamin, this land, all the 12 tribes. Gave some very specific land to Joshua and Caleb. And then he came to Levi and very specifically to Aaron. And in Exodus, I'm sorry, Numbers 18, verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land. And I'm quite certain that at that moment, Aaron's face dropped. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Everybody else gets all this great land, and I get nothing? But the verse goes on, and God said, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now which one is better? Land with fruit trees, springs of water, Places to farm, or the Lord himself who provides all things. Certainly, Aaron had the greatest portion of all. The Lord himself. And Aaron and his descendants, his children and his children's children and so on, they were the ones who served as the priests in the tabernacle, the ones who served in the temple. They were the ones who led in worship. Their inheritance, their portion was the Lord, far better. And now David comes along and he says the same thing. You, God, are my portion. And and I think that he's reflecting in in verses 5 and 6. I think he's reflecting on his own Davidic covenant that God gave to him. You can read it in uh, 2 Samuel, but very specifically in verse 16, that Davidic covenant says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David understood and he knew that part of his inheritance, part of his blessing, part of everything that God had given to him was a promise from God. And he was so thankful of the inheritance that God gave to him. Friends, Jesus Christ is your inheritance. He is your portion And isn't it marvelous to know that you don't just have land, you don't just have things, but you have God himself. What a great joy that is. The Lord is our prize. He is your inheritance. The fourth statement is wise counsel. Wise counsel counsel. He starts with good refuge in God, 
excellent fellowship, beautiful inheritance, and finally now, a wise counsel. Maybe I'll just call this a, a father's help. A father's help. Have you ever been given good counsel and you refuse to listen? Anybody? Anybody? How about, have you ever been given bad counsel and you thought it was a good idea? I think if we are honest, we can all come up with various instances where we've received bad counsel because it gave us pleasure in the moment for whatever the thing was. Or we refused bad counsel, or I should say that the other way, we refused good counsel because we didn't want to work hard. David is recognizing all of God's counsel as wisdom. It is his help. And doesn't James 1.3 say, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. David's able to reflect on the fact that God's counsel always proves itself to be true wisdom. True wisdom. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. David learned to walk in the counsel of God. And he followed as best he could. He failed, and he failed again, and he failed again. But the great reality was when David failed, God picked him up and set him on the right path again. And what a great blessing that is to know that we have the same wisdom and counsel that David had. But he goes on, and he lists something else at the end of verse 8. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. My right hand, the Father's wisdom is seen through the Father's, or excuse me, the Father's counsel is seen through the Father's help and through the Father's hand. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says this, and I think David can identify with this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. We don't know exactly what the fear David was, of David, that David had was. There was something that struck fear into his heart, and he talks about the result of that fear, but he doesn't really say what it was. And I think each of us can identify with, with fear. And sometimes knowing that somebody else is there with you brings comfort and help. Like a little child looking to their father for help. I was reminded just a little bit ago of, of these photos. Uh, Jasmine and Christopher and I were up hiking. And this was in July of 2013. Long time ago. And we were up hiking. And inevitably, there was this part of the trail that got steep. And, and there was sand and dust and pine needles. And inevitably, the kids started slipping and falling. They got a little bit of scrapes and bruises. And, 
And so I finally just picked up Christopher and carried him. And Jasmine's sitting there like, well, what about me? Right? And, and, and so I, I started to hold her hand. And there was this moment where it, we were climbing up a rock. And, and as we were climbing up, she slipped and she fell, right? But she didn't fall down because I was holding her hand. And I remember her looking up with fear of this rock and the, 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 the steepness of, of everything that was going on, the sand falling. And she looks up and she cries out, Daddy, I trust you, but I'm scared. Have you ever been in a place like that in life? Where you look all around you and there, there doesn't seem to be any hope. I think our country can identify with that in certain ways. Death has overwhelmed us in certain areas, at least. I looked yet last night, and in the United States, uh, there were 768,989 people that have died because of the COVID virus. Uh, in the world, there were... Oh, that was the world number. I'm sorry. I read the number wrong. 768,000 deaths in the world. And in the country, there were 172,606 deaths that came in the United States. There's a lot of death that's come in various places. And I, I, I think it's okay to mention this. Um, I'll just say you guys are familiar with Casey Ketterling. His father-in-law, or his stepfather, I should say, uh, has COVID, and uh, pneumonia has set in. I don't know necessarily what that means for him, but I know Casey did tell us last night that his father was not doing well, or his stepfather was not doing well. Um, and I'll just solicit you to pray for him. Um, I've just forgotten his name. Basil, Basil, thank you. Uh, if you guys wouldn't mind praying for Basil, um, I think that would uh, go a long way for the Catterling family and for their extended family. Now, I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of people that have thought of death in a different way the last few months. Uh, many who've experienced death in a different way or uh, seeing others die, I should say, in a different way. And in the midst of this, we find fear, right? In the midst of death, there is this unknown aspect and element that drives fear into the hearts of many. But let me just say, we don't have to fear. Fear does not have to take over you in whatever the situation, whatever the case might be. Do you remember Peter? The last time that he had a conversation, at least recorded with Jesus, in the scripture. He was there at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. And Jesus, you remember he, he asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And in verse 18 he said, truly, truly, Peter, I tell you that when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old you will have your hands stretched out, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
And John adds a parenthetical statement saying, Jesus said this so that Peter would know the death in which he was going to die. And then he says, follow me. If I was Peter, that would have struck fear into my heart. I don't want to be led by others. I don't want to have my hands stretched out. And yet I think it is Peter who gives such great and amazing courage in the midst of terrible trials and persecution of the early church. Peter, knowing that he would die a martyr's death, says this in 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter, who had suffered already, who knew he was going to suffer a martyr's death, he says, take courage, because there's a great blessing. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect. He goes on in 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Think about that. Peter knew the end of his fiery trial would be his death in a place that he did not want to go. As though something strange were happening to you, but insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter was able to look forward to his suffering, to his own death, knowing it was coming. It was inevitable. And he could approach it with boldness and courage and without fear because his eyes were on Jesus. And the same is true for you. Whatever it is that strikes fear into your heart, you can approach that fear with boldness, knowing that God is your refuge. So then we come to the end. Future hope. Really, if you look carefully, I think you can say that we've seen a present faith with everything so far, and David looks forward to a future hope. That's the way Alistair Begg put it. And he says, really... In verse 9, he says, therefore, and really this is the pinnacle, this is the conclusion of his argument, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Dwells secure. There is gladness, joy, and security because Christ I should say God in David's case, but Christ in our case. He is the one who preserves him. He is the one who preserves you. And as a result, the conclusion is you can have gladness, joy, and security. 
with God's good refuge, the excellent friendship that he provides, the beautiful inheritance, his wise counsel. And now I told you, David told us he would lay out what he's afraid of, but he doesn't say the circumstance. In verse 10 he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This is why David wrote the psalm. He's afraid of death. Now I gave some suggestions of things that made David fear. Perhaps it was a, a lion or a wolf or a bear. Perhaps it was Goliath. Perhaps it was another battlefield moment where David saw true fear, knowing death was going to come. Maybe it was when he was running from Saul or some of the other places that David had to flee for his life. But what about the end of his life? Remember, near the end, David recognized, ooh, there's some transitions happening, and Saul, Solomon, I should say, is the one who's going to take over my kingdom. And, and really, there's a transition. Solomon becomes the king, and there's some great celebration, but David's still alive. David, the man who used to be king, the man who used to conquer cities and nations, and other great warriors with his sword, he was an old man, cold and on his deathbed. Moments like that enable people to reflect on their life, on what used to be. But even more so, it makes people reflect on the inevitable, what's coming, death. I can't prove it, but I think David was afraid of death because he knew it was just around the corner. And he could not escape it. And so he cries out, Lord, preserve me! And he lays out all these statements of who his God is. And here's the crescendo in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And there, of course, is the superintending of the Holy Spirit because we're not just looking at David, we're looking at Christ in the Psalms here. And of course, we all know, David did die. And we can say with affirmation from the New Testament that God did not abandon his soul. In fact, let's go ahead and do that. Let's turn to Peter's words in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 33. <clears throat> Pentecost was taking place, the, the holiday. The Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples. People in Israel had seen what was going on. They thought this was crazy. They made fun of them. They thought they were drunk, and Peter's like, no, 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 guys. It's early in the morning. Nobody's drunk. Listen to the word of God. And he preaches an amazing sermon. He quotes Joel. He quotes the prophets. 
But then in verse 22 he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here's the quotation, here's the thing that Peter gleans as the truth, pointing to Christ in the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. There's verse 10. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The people that were there at the time of Peter, all they needed to do was go into the city of Jerusalem and dig up the bones of David And they could see that that was not true for David. His flesh saw corruption. But David wasn't talking about himself. David knew it. You and I can see it in the text. Peter knew it. When Christ died, he was buried. Maybe I'll have you turn to 1 Corinthians 15 as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. There's Scriptures all over the place that speak of the death of Christ. All over the place. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Where are the Scriptures that speak of the resurrection of Christ? That He would not see corruption. What's in Psalm 16, Psalm 16:10. He was raised before his flesh saw corruption. When David saw the inevitable that was coming, he knew, he understood, he saw it, he felt it, and he cried out to God for preservation. He put his hope, everything that he had in the Lord, not in his sword, not in his power and might, not in armies, but it was fully in the Lord. And in that, he could trust. Not that he wouldn't die, but in the power of resurrection. And friends, that truth is there for you as well. It's not just something for ancient people. It's something for all of us. And Jesus Christ by the power of the gospel, makes grace available to every one of you. 
Everyone who trusts in the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus demonstrated his power over the grave by being raised from the dead. Yes, he raised many others. That's true. But Jesus demonstrated his power over the grave by being raised from the dead. And he offers the same thing to you. I, I don't know what fears you have. I don't know the things that you've seen that you're dealing with. I, I know from being a hospital chaplain what it is like to go in and, and, and sing with a family who, who knows that their mom or their grandmother is going to die. I remember a, a number of years ago going in and there was a father who was ready to excavate his son. And they knew it would just be a few moments where his son would breathe or try to breathe and struggle and fail and he would die. And holding his hands, we went in together and watched his son slip into eternity. And he was hopeless. He did not know the Lord. But friends, you can have the hope. The hope of resurrection. The hope that Jesus Christ will raise you from the dead. This is what David spoke of. This is what Peter spoke of. This is how he could approach his death with confidence. Knowing that he would overcome death. And I think that's exactly what Paul had in his mind when in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 56, 57, he says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, O death is swallowed up in victory! O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear anything. Because in Jesus Christ, you can have victory. If you trust in Him, if you believe in Him, and cry out to Him as your place of refuge. Father, thank you for being our place of refuge, for knowing that we can trust in you, that death is swallowed up in victory. Just like Isaiah said, just like Paul said, and just like we echo here today, Lord, you are our refuge. You are our strength. And for all of those struggling for those that are hurting, that those are, uh, that are plagued with fear, Lord, show your grace, show your mercy, show yourself true to overcome all the obstacles that are in front of them. And I pray that your grace would be seen and known and understood so that we can approach death with confidence, just like David did, just like Peter and Paul and so many others did. And may you be glorified because of that, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition right now to communion. And I, as we were singing, 
I, I wanted to grab this, and it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I try to work hard when we're singing the songs to grab songs that will connect with what the message is. And, and I just thought of this. When I stand in glory 